Good morning. Psalm 16 is where we are this morning. So if you've got a copy of God's Word with you, you should have sermon notes. Hopefully they've got notes on the back and the front. And uh, if you've got your Bible, an ink pen, and some notes, because you're going to need all of those this morning as we seek to draw comfort and refuge from God's Word. And so if you got that open with you, to stand with me to your feet in reverence and honor God's Word, and let's hear from the Lord this morning. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Lord, good news and good hope and real encouragement from your word this morning. So settle us and encourage us. Lord, you can comfort everyone in the room at your point of need with your word. And so, Lord, we pray for that this morning. I pray for a time of quiet and peace to settle on your people today. That they may enjoy and rejoice in the God of their salvation through looking at your Son, Jesus, who is the Christ. In Jesus' name, you can be seated. And so as we orient ourselves in Psalm 16, this is a time of quiet and peace for the psalmist. As you know, much of his life, he's running from somebody, and then when he has the kingdom, there's a lot of turmoil. His own son turns against him, and enemies about him. But this season that he's in right now is a time of quiet and peace. And so he's had a time of where things are settled around him to reflect on his God, to reflect on the deliverance that he's been delivered from, and God sustaining goodness and grace and all the practicals and all the wonderful. He's had time to reflect on that and be encouraged by that. He comes away with a deeper devotion and a renewed contentment in his God. So can I ask you a question and be honest with yourself? Have you had a peaceful summer? Has your summer been peaceful? 
Would that be the word you use to describe it so far? Or has it been busy, hurried, even in the good things that we tried to do and still trying to work and maintain a family and squeeze in vacations? And we all know family vacations are not always peaceful. <laughs> you get almost to the end of summer and you're almost glad summer's over. And so I wrestled in high school, and oftentimes in the middle of wrestling practice, coach would tell us to take a knee. Everybody remember hearing that? Take a knee. Well, practice is not over. If, if you're ever in a game and you take a knee, if you're ever in practice, the game's not over. Practice is not over. There's still work to be done. But sometimes you need to talk, calm down. You need to take a knee. That is so that we can catch our breath and listen to the coach. That's what Sundays are about. But especially today, I'm just asking you, no matter what's going on in your life, to simply take a knee. Let's look at our Jesus. What can we learn from him about our life, about our death, about the hope that we have? Puritan pastor Richard Baxter said it well when he said, Always preach as a dying man to dying men as if never to preach again. Quotes on the screen. Psalmist understands this and so did Christ. No one is ready to live until he is first ready to die. Only in facing the reality of death with a living faith in God is a person prepared to live boldly and courageously for him even in the face of troubling adversity. This the psalmist have, has come to grips with his God. He has looked beyond the grave. And so now he is ready to live. There's no greater model for this than Jesus I want you to see, turn with me to Acts 2, that the Bible has given us permission this morning to take Psalms 16 and apply it to our Savior. We have Peter in his sermon at Pentecost. I'm going to pick up in the midst of his sermon. Look at verse 22, Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many works and wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set on the descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and all we are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received the, the Father from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this day you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he used Psalm 16 to say, that's all about Christ. David was talking about Jesus. 
So what can we learn from Jesus' life? You see, many times we go from the manger to the cross to the resurrection. And we forget, we skip over oftentimes that Jesus lived a life, a perfect life. A life with with no failures, no mistakes, though he went through everything we are going through and will go through, yet he never had an impure motive. So what can we learn about him? Next two weeks, Psalm 17 and 18, we're going to see how this trust works itself out. But today, I just simply want us to see this trust in, in Jesus. Because this psalm's about him. So what can we learn about devotion? What can we learn about contentment? What can we learn about hope and death? It's a tall order. I ran out of time in the first service. I'm going to do my best to keep this thing moving. And if I have to skip over, I will. But you are the second service. And there's not one after this. So I'm just saying. Verse 1. What's the secret to a devoted life? Look at verse 1. Back in Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God. That means to be saved, to be guarded. Do you know that the manhood of Christ needed to be preserved? Don't skip over the humanity of Christ, for it is necessary for your salvation. It had to be preserved. Turn with me to Matthew 4. As soon as you hear Matthew 4, you should should automatically key in your mind. That's the temptation of Jesus when he went in the wilderness for 40 days. So someone talked to me. Did, before Jesus started his ministry, did he just go camping? Is that what Matthew 4, he just had a good camping trip. What was he doing? Somebody talk to me. It's okay talking church. He was fasting. What is connected? What's the purpose of fasting? What's connected with fasting? Praying. Fasting and praying is about what? It's about the one who is fasting and praying being dependent on his God. That's why we fast and pray. Lord, I need you more than I need food. So when Jesus started his ministry, he wasn't looking for a building or picking out a praise team. He wasn't. He was spending 40 days without food in prayer for dependence before his God. That's what he was doing. I'm learning. That's what we should be doing. You should be too scared to be an autonomous church lest you spend some time on your knees before your God. This is what Jesus did. He says, for in you I take refuge. Matthew 26, 38. Jesus is in the garden. Remember he goes to his disciples. What does he ask his disciples to do with him? Will you you stay awake, pray with me? Remember what he said in verse 38? My soul is very sorrowful, even to what? Death. What I'm going through, what I'm experiencing, what's about to happen? This is about to kill me. So what am I going to do? Take a pill or go on a vacation? No, he said, I'm going to go pray. Will you pray with me? Jesus' whole ministry from beginning to end is one of refuge in his Father. It is a life lived in communion. But you see, you've got to have faith for communion. Romans 10, 14. How can they call on him whom they have not believed? How do they believe in him whom they have not heard? In other words, it's not just about conversion. Lost people don't ever call on him for anything. 
And they have no faith. They have no ability to depend and find refuge in God. They are on their own. It's a scary place to be. We see in Jesus' life, he didn't live his life that way. You see, the secret of a devoted life is not bold independence, but prayer-filled dependence. This is what Jesus' life looked like from beginning to end. But also it looked like lordship. Jesus was so devoted because he rested in the lordship of his Father. This is master motif in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. This is Adonai, Lord of all. Did Jesus ever call? Use this language. Well, turn with me to Matthew. Matthew 11. I know there's a lot of scripture there. I just want you to see a survey of just some different places. Matthew 11, 25 is just a prayer. A prayer that he would have prayed often with his disciples. Before other people. This is simply how Jesus prayed. Look at verse 25. Matthew 11. At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That's what he's saying. Lord of all. That's how he he approached his Father. Remember on the cross, Matthew 27, verse 46. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Called him his God. Called him his Lord. John 20. After his resurrection, you remember Mary came and she wanted to grab a hold of him. He was alive. She was excited. Remember what he said to her? John 20, verse 17. He said, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to to the Father, but to go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to your Father. To my Father and to your Father. To my God and your God. Jesus' life was one of allegiance to God alone. He submitted. We're going to look at this more in a minute. He submitted to the Father's authority, the Father's plan, and the Father's purposes. Without fail. Without question. Look at the end of verse 2. says, I have... No good apart from you. In other words, in our life, nothing we do improves or diminishes God. This is an important lesson to learn from Jesus, you see. Because the work of Jesus, that is his life, death, and resurrection, was not due to any lack in the Godhead. God was not lonely that he saved you. God was not a little bit less than divine, and so he had to do something to bolster his self-image. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing adds nothing to the divinity. Listen to this quote. The most blessed and infinite happy God stood in no need of the obedience and death of his Son. It was for our sakes that the work of redemption was undertaken and not because of lack or want on the part of the Most High God. If God's goodness and his divinity is a reservoir Whenever the atoning work of Christ was finished, whenever all of your sins and my sins and the sins of all those that would ever be saved was paid in full, past, present, and future, not one ounce was gone from that reservoir. He is God. He was God before He created you. He was God before He saved you. He is the good. And Jesus brought it with Him. 
We are the benefit of his goodness. David understood what James said. Every good and perfect gift comes from above from who? Father. This father doesn't change. Jesus understood it. Look at verse 3. Back to Psalm 16. Jesus was so devoted the secret because he loved the saints. He loved God's people. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom all in whom is all my delight. Think about this in the life of Christ. Jesus loved the disciples. He loved God's people. Look a couple chapters ahead. We're going to look at this in a couple weeks. Psalms 18, 19. This is good. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. Why did he rescue me? What does it say? Because he delighted in me. You see that? That's good news this morning. I don't know about you. I need that. I'm going to need it in two weeks again. So I'm excited. We're going to say that again in two weeks. Because we need to hear it. But what we're doing today is saying, how did we see it in the life of Jesus? Did Jesus delight? Or was Jesus on a mission so resolute and so devoted to God that he just missed the people in front of him? He didn't even see them. Did Jesus live that way? If he did, he wouldn't have been able to say John 13, 34. Remember what he said to his disciples? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you are also to love one another. You can't say that if you don't love people. <laughs> Get yourself in trouble. What he's saying is, agape other people the way I have agape you. Agape is not some mushy-gushy feeling. Agape is a sovereign love that is taken and placed on someone who doesn't deserve it. This is what I've done to you. You do that to other people. He, he repeats it. John, so impacted by this, he comes back to it in 1 John, in 4 and verse 10. He said, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. How do I know God loved us? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. He sent his son so that he can remove your wrath and turn wrath into favor so God could be good to you. That's how Jesus loved his saints. He loved the saints. But listen, this is my point to this. Write this down if you're taking notes. A life devoted to God is a life devoted to God's people. A life devoted to God is a life devoted to God's people. Think about this with me. Love God with our mind. It's one of our points in Psalms, this whole series. is teaching us to love God with our minds. Jesus, with all that he accomplished, by and large, spent his time living, laboring, and loving with 12 ordinary men. It's a good book, by the way. Don MacArthur wrote that, 12 Ordinary Women as well. Good book to read. That was Jesus' life. Jesus changed the world through investing in 12 men. He loved them. So the secret to devotion, prayerful dependence, resting on God's lordship, knowing where your goodness comes from, being devoted to his people. But notice there's something else in verse 4. He was single-minded in his devotion. 
he wasn't constantly reacting to the, what's around him. He had a single-minded devotion to God. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offering of bud I will not pour out. I won't even take their names in my lips. So can you think through the life of Christ then? Where would you go to start with if you were having a conversation about the fact that Jesus abhorred idolatry? One place we ought to go is right back to the temptations, right? Matthew 4, remember that? The devil came on a high mountain and said, Hey, you can avoid all this suffering mess. You can have the kingdom now. Just bow down and worship me and here's the keys. Don't miss the point. The point is what Jesus said. Verse 10, he said, Be gone, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Not a chance, he said. I will worship God. I will trust in what he has said. I will hold him up and follow him. He didn't just hate idolatry when the devil said it. You see, there's oftentimes idolatry in the church. Remember John 2, 13 to 17, one of two times most people believe Jesus cleansed the temple. They brought in greed, money changing in the temple, using God and his word for a profit. He cleaned house. In, in verse 16 it says, Take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. What are they remembering? They had memorized Psalm 69 verse 9. God's, God's devotion causes a zeal. God's people. Jesus had a zeal for God's house because he had a zeal for God. He hated idolatry when he saw it in the Pharisees. Remember, Matthew 15 was just one of many times where they said, won't your disciples wash their hands? That was part of our traditions. They've rejected it. Jesus said to them in verse 8, People honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines and commandments of men. In other words, you're worshiping your tradition. You're not worshiping me. He hated idolatry. He would not throw his hat in the ring with those of idolaters. This affected Christians in the second century. Christian apologists, men like Justin Martyr and Tertullian, spoke. They began to defend Christians. You know what? They, they defended them with this allegiance argument, devotion. You know what they said? Shrinking it down their argument. He said, they said, Christians are the most devoted. We are more devoted. We are more better for society of Rome than Romans are because of our allegiance is to God first. We make better citizens than you do. That was their argument. We love people better than you do. We, well, just listen to Tertullian. I've got a quote from him. It's good. He's bold. He was a bold rascal. Caesar, he's speaking to the Romans now, Caesar is more ours than yours, for our God has appointed him, and Christians do more than you for his welfare. What did he mean? He means God put him in, God will take him out, God has told us to pray for him, we are praying for Caesar. 
Why? Because God told us to. Because God said he's in charge of putting them in power. Listen, to hate the president that God has appointed is a devotion to God problem. Christians understood it. We're going to pray for this man, not because he's righteous, but because God put him in, God will take him out. God tells me to pray and trust him. We don't trust in the president that was before, the president that is here now, or the president will be after. We trust in our God because he does not change. He puts them in power. This is driven by our allegiance to God and him alone. So let me ask you something. If you could have coffee with Jesus, what would he have been like? You can take him to Starbucks and have a coffee. Most of us think, well, I'm really wound up pretty tight. I've got, you know, I've got all my planners. I got my planner. I got all my reminders on my phone. I got a paper planner, too, that I write things down. So make sure I don't miss anything. But then there's another personality that just says, you know, everything's going to be okay. If I get there 10 minutes late, it's going to be all right. Many of you like that in church. I'm not, I'm not saying just saying. But what if you, could have, if, you could, if you could talk to Jesus, what would he have been like? Jesus would have been not only the most devoted, but listen, devotion does not make you mean, stiff, and hard to get along with. That's not what we see in Jesus, nor is that what we see in the Psalms. Jesus had to be the most content man on the face of the earth, did he not? And, and in reality, we'd have to be honest. The most contented people are the most pleasant to be around. If you're a discontented person, you're pretty miserable to hang out with sometimes. Just saying. Jesus, so what's the secret? How can I not be a miserable, discontented person? Look to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus lived a life knowing that God was always good to his own. He trusted his Father. Look at verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's not starting from a negative there. He's starting from a positive. Please, brothers and sisters, we need to be able to start conversations with people we love from positive places. What David is, is just you stop and rest a little bit. Maybe we could be this way. This is what David is saying. He's had time to think and reflect. He's saying, God's been good to me. He's pointing to Christ. Here's what I want to get to you as quick as possible. Turn with me to John 17. This is what Jesus is saying. He said it. I just want you to see it. When He, he said, my portion, this is Canaan language. They divided up the land in poor, in, into allotments and they gave it to the different tribes. They're using this language. So what's it, what does Jesus look as his portion? What's in his cup? Look at this. John, John 17. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Here's what Jesus said. When I look at my cup, the Father's in it. That was what was in my cup. My inheritance, what is waiting for me is Him. And I live for it. And I labor for it. And I long for it. Think about this. 
Let's be honest with ourselves. We spend our whole life trying to get a piece of land and to big as big a house as we can on it when our Jesus, our model, was basically homeless and yet he had everything that he desired because what he desired was his father and he never lacked. The secret. You see it in John 17. There's a secret to devotion here in John 17, 4 and 5. There's a secret to contentment. It's right there. You see it? What did Jesus say? I want to do the work that my Father has given me, and then I want to go home. Why? Because I was with Him before this began. And I know what it means to abide in God's presence. I long for it. But He's given me a mission, and I'm going to glorify Him, that mission. But when it is over, I'm going to the house. This is what I live for. It's what I long for. It's what keeps me content in the now. It's what He has promised me. How much time do we spend praying people out of heaven and neglecting those who are going to hell? That says much of our devotion. Here's my point. We are heirs with Christ. And if Christ has all He needs because He has the Father, what do we have? John 17, 3, who comes right before verse 4, says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. It's what I long for my people that I love, is that they know you the way I do. That's why I came. Jesus understood that. Because he did, because he lived in the presence of God, because he labored to dwell in the presence of his Father forever, it affected the way he sought God's will and the way he obeyed it in his life. He says, I bless the Lord, verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. So this has a lot to do with the master motif. He's coming back to this. Turn with me to the book of John. John 7. I just want you to see this language. Jesus used it all the time when he was on earth on his mission. He used it all the time. Listen to some of these verses. John 7, verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. Now flip over a chapter to chapter 8, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 12, 49. says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself giving me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Because he trusted his Father and his goodness. Because he lived in his presence. When God told him to do something, he did it. He obeyed it. Because in those commandments were the presence of God. There was communion 
in obedience. And there's only communion in obedience. There is no communion with God in disobedience. Jesus modeled that. He lived his life in communion with God. And listen, look into what the text said. God governed every word that come out of his mouth. So David, in this calm season of life, teaching us something very practical this morning. There must be times in our life, no matter what you need to do today, there must be seasons of life, no matter how much is on your plate, there must be seasons of life, despite how busy a mother you are, or how busy a business owner in your yard you are, you must get away, you must do what Jesus did, you must rise early and spend time with your God. We must actively seek times of rest. Jesus did. Devotion to God, and listen, you add something else here. Devotion to your spouse requires setting aside time for both. So can I ask you, how, how are you doing with that? You know, going on a family vacation is not the same as spending quality time with your wife or your husband. It's not. You need time. More importantly this morning, you need time with your God. This is what we can learn from the life of Jesus. No one accomplished more than he did, and no one spent more time in prayer than he did. Great generals win their battles in their heads before they march their troops off to war. Jesus won the battle for me and for you on his knees before he went to the cross. Jesus lived in self-consciousness in the presence of God. In other words, this was intentional. This, I have to come back to this because the psalmist does. Because this is important. This is not only the main theme of Psalm 16. This is a main theme for David. David says, I have set the Lord always before me. He's pointing then to Christ. He says, I've set the Father always before me. And because he is, because he's with me, this mission's not going to fail. I'm not going to fall. So can I ask you something? Did Jesus do what he did, trying to earn or keep his father's approval? Did he have to, did he have to earn it? Was Jesus doing what he doing? Was he working so hard to try to make sure he didn't lose the that-a-boy of his father? Listen, I don't know what your father did or didn't do. I don't know how good he was or how good he wasn't. All I know is Jesus and the Father has given us an example here. Do you remember what Jesus said to his son? Beginning of his ministry. You need to speak these words to your kids, fathers. The father spoke it to his son. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Period. Now go do the work I've given you to do. Now that's motivation. The father the perfect father to the perfect son saying, I am pleased with you. Jesus told his disciples, remember, once I leave, don't you go out there and start. No, no, no. Go, wait for the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to give you my power. And then you'll be my witnesses. We must live. We must labor in the now with God before us. 
So what does it look like to live in this life in hope? To face death in hope? Because remember, Jesus came to earth knowing where he was going. He was self-conscious of that. It didn't surprise him. It was, the cross wasn't plan B. It wasn't plan B before he created the world either. It was always his plan. He knew that. You look at the word therefore in verse 9. There's a therefore. I love that. Jesus, this is the whole point. This is why Peter and Paul are using this text for, to prove the resurrection. Jesus lived his life saying, even in death I'm safe. No alienation in death means no alienation in life. Once I have resolved that, now I'm ready to live. Until that, you're going to live in a life with a spirit of fear, always waiting for something to take you out. Jesus didn't live life this way. This is why many of us, our joy is skin deep. Because we must resolve what Jesus resolved. And the first is that his life rested in God as the protector of his actual body, his flesh. Look at verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You see, if the sheep are not resting, they won't drink. God is the protector. Wouldn't Jesus have been the most joyful man on the face of the earth, even though he was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief? Can I show you one place? Luke, Luke 4. Luke 4, I just want you to see this. One story of many in the life of Christ. Do you remember? If you look at verse 16, if you've got a little subtitle on your Bible, Jesus is, goes to his own hometown to preach. Remember? Remember how that went? He read from Isaiah. He said, this is talking about me. They started asking questions. He said a little more. Look down in verse 28. And when they heard these things, this is people from his own hometown, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow on the hill to which their town was bit so, that, so they could throw him down the cliff. Look at verse 30. He just says this and just moves on. But passing through their midst, he went away. This was over and over in Jesus' life. You see, Jesus knew who held his death date. I mean, he could have said, might as well, that Jesus left there and went to Starbucks and got a cup of coffee. How many times did Jesus say, my time's not yet come. I am completely safe until my God gets through with me. Is this not how Jesus lived? Is this not what it means to live? You need to rest this pack. You need to put this to bed that God is the protector of your body and more importantly... And more significantly, he's the protector of your soul. It's a greater or lesser argument. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Let your Holy One see corruption. That word corruption is decay. It's a metaphor for total isolation or banishment from God's presence. See, that's the issue with David. It was the issue with Christ. I'm not going to let anything get in the way of God's presence in my life. Nothing's going to stop it. Did Jesus believe this? It seemed to me when he was on the cross, he believed it. Do you remember Luke 23, verse 43? You remember the thief that he was talking about on the cross that repented of his sins? 
put his faith right there on the, on the cross? What did he promise to? He said, truly, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, you'll be with me in paradise in a few days because I still got some things I got to do. No, he said today. A few verses later, Jesus commits his soul to who? His father. Got my soul. He's not going to let it. He's not going to abandon it. Listen. Jesus, I'm going to let the growth groups talk about this if they want to. That Jesus paid the debt for your sin completely on that tree. He paid the wrath alive on that tree. When he said it is finished, there was nothing left to do. The cup that was full of wrath in your life, when Jesus paid the debt, now is full of Christ. And he is enough. This was the good news that Paul preached in Acts 13. It was the same message that Peter preached. What did Paul use? Acts 13, verses 29 to 39. What message, what, what did he use to make his point? He used in verse 33, Psalms 2. And then look in verse 35, Acts 13, verse 35. It says, therefore, he says also in another Psalms, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 36, for David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, that's important fell asleep and laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from in the law of Moses. He said My, Jesus' life was as important as his death, but because he is alive, Everything that's true of Christ is true of you. And he did what we could not do. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That Peter preached. That Paul preached. That we preached. And this gives us confidence in this life. Joyful confidence for the future. Verse 11. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand. Pleasures forevermore. So listen to this brothers and sisters, if you have this morning a devotion problem, if you have a joy problem, if you have a contentment problem, it is ultimately solved by doing whatever you must to get yourself in the presence of God. And there's only one way, and it is through Jesus Christ. And so whatever you're facing today, I can say nothing else than what Hebrews said. That he said to the suffering and almost frantic Hebrews, look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the same, and is seated at the right hand of God. And because he is, one day we will be. And this is what we live from. This is the secret. Look at verse 11. The source of joy is God's presence. The quantity is fullness. The extent forevermore. We should be the most joyful people on the face of the earth. Because we have the best news. Is the resurrected Jesus giving you confidence in your life and in your death? 
Don't miss the, the message of verse 9 and 10 this morning. Your soul is invincible, so live. Live for Him. For if you live for yourself, the bad news is this morning is you are not saved. Because those that are new in Christ long for one thing. Their heart beats, beats to live for Him. And all you have to do is point the sheep towards that. And they will drink. The resurrected Jesus gives the very ground for our confidence and hope in this life. 1 Peter 1. We'll close with this. This is the implication of someone who understands my soul is invincible and is kept in God. Listen to Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, through, though it tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means, brothers and sisters, everything that you're going through is never wasted. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's the good news, brothers and sisters. Our relationship with God will not end in death. No, brothers and sisters, for it is only beginning. The greatest day you have with God in this life is simply a snapshot of eternity. As if a father fulfilled his promise to his own son, so he will fulfill it to you. So my encouragement to you today as you take a knee in the face of Jesus is to fulfill your ministry and look to Christ. So Lord, we have heard from your word. He's so full and so rich.